Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and I'm so excited to be kicking off Season 4 with a special roundtable episode on MFAs. I've been wanting to address MFAs on the show for a long time. Whether to get one is a massive, and potentially massively expensive, decision that most every writer considers at some point. I did, and decided it wasn't right for me at the time. I talk about why in the episode. There are as many arguments for an MFA as there are against it, which can make even thinking about them overwhelming. This conversation is about making it less overwhelming. I'm going to be joined by two fantastic writers. Regular listeners will remember my first guest, poet Erica Dawson, from episode 32. Erica is the author of When Rap Spoke Straight to God, The Small Blades Hurt, and Big Eyed Afraid. Her work has appeared in three editions of Best American Poetry, The Believer, Virginia Quarterly Review, and other journals and anthologies. She is an associate professor of English and writing at the University of Tampa, where she directs the low-residency MFA program. Rounding out our roundtable is Leah Hampton. Leah is a fellow at the Michener Center for Writers and editor-in-chief of Bat City Review. Her work has appeared in Echo Tone, Story South, Appalachian Heritage, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, and elsewhere. Her first book, Bodies, will be released by Henry Holt in 2020. As you'll hear, each of us comes at the topic of MFAs from a different perspective. Our goal in this conversation is to speak honestly about our experiences and raise the questions you should ask yourself about what you need, what you want, what you can afford, and what you should expect and not expect out of an MFA. We'll also be taking a few listener questions at the end. One more quick thing before we dive in. At one point in this recording, I say the Virginia College of Fine Arts when I meant the Vermont College of Fine Arts. So just a heads up about that. Okay, let's get started. My MFA experience uh, is very minimal. So I actually have, I have a master's degree in magazine journalism, um, which I got from NYU a few years back. Um, a few years back. I'm much older than I think I am. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Um, so, so I kind of did and didn't get an MFA experience. I had obviously a much more nonfiction focused curriculum, but I did have small kind of workshop classes and, and very, the sort of very intensive schedule was an 18 month program. Um, and since I have moved my focus more to fiction, I wondered a bunch of times about whether I should go for an MFA. That's kind of part of how the show developed. Um, but ultimately I decided not to pull the trigger on that, at least for the time being, um, which I'm sure we'll get into naturally as we talk about stuff. But so that's kind of a, in a nutshell, my experience. So I am, gosh, let's see, how can I start? I, my, I'm currently uh, an MFA student. I'm finishing uh, my MFA at the Michener Center for Writers in Austin, Texas, which is a fellowship-based MFA program. Um, I come from a background of working in higher education. So prior to pursuing an MFA, I kind of knew how you know, higher education worked and I had a master's degree. I was trying to decide for a long time whether I wanted an MFA. And over the course of a couple of years, I decided to interrupt my career and made the decision to just go go for it and, you know, aim for the dream. And 
really devote myself to my work and my writing and trying to develop because it was difficult to do working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week and then also trying to be a writer. So I felt like I needed that time. And um, so I did a lot of research. I was able to reach out to and make a lot of friends at other programs. And because I have some previous knowledge of higher education administration, I felt like I made some really, I felt like I made good decisions for myself. And I have a friend who calls the whole system of MFAs, the MFA industrial complex. That's my friend Vince. And um, I think, uh, I feel like I, I, I am, have learned how to navigate the MFA industrial complex. I love that, the MFA industrial complex. Um, well, I'm Erica, and uh, I, I suppose, followed a pretty traditional route in terms of getting an MFA. I graduated with my BA and then decided I wanted to take two years off before graduate school. So in 2003, I began uh, the MFA program at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and that was a three-year program. So I finished in 2006, and, and not to sound hyperbolic, but it really was life and, and career changing. Uh, and I studied poetry there. After that, I went on to get my PhD at University of Cincinnati. Uh, and then I came to University of Tampa um, to teach creative writing and actually eventually became the director of our low residency MFA program. So I, I like to think of myself as a, a pretty good resource when it comes to that uh, MFA industrial complex, as Leia said. Very cool. Awesome. Well, you know, when we kind of put the call out for doing the show and, and when people have asked about it in the past, I think um, I think a couple things really stand out that people want to know where people are looking for when they think about an MFA and and starting with just that question of, you know, should I apply for one? And and I love that we've all got kind of different trajectories and different like paths around the the MFA IC <laughs> that like, you know, we we maybe came in early or came in later. And and so I guess maybe why don't we start with a kind of broad overview for folks who maybe are really just starting to think about this kind of like what, what the options are, you know, what the, the low residency, high residency or full residency, rather, um, those sorts of, those sorts of differences. Sure. Well, I can, I can jump in there. Uh, I would, uh, I mean, there, there are essentially those two different models, the, the full residency programs and then the low residency programs, a full residency program often means that you're going to have to pick up and move your belongings and move to a different city. For example, I was in Baltimore, Maryland when I decided to uh, accept the offer at Ohio State, so I packed all of my things and I moved to the Midwest. Uh, it, it does involve um, a big life change, if you will, for if the program that you've applied to and decided to attend is not right next door. A low residency program allows you the benefits of an MFA education by only being on that university's campus roughly 20 days out of the year. That's usually 10 days in the winter and 10 days in the summer, which means that you don't have to, you know, do a complete life change. You don't have to move to a different city. You don't have to uproot your family. Um, you can still do the education, but most of it happens happens remotely. So in the beginning, as you're thinking about which kind of program is for you, it's important to think about what fits your life at this particular stage in the game. Um, how many other people do you have to consider? Uh, is it a good idea to take your kids out of school and move them somewhere else? 
Do you work well independently? Then a low res program might be better for you. But I would say in the beginning of the process of thinking about programs to try to narrow it down to which model uh, would best serve your needs at this point in time, not just your educational needs and your creative needs, but your, your life needs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Leah, can you speak to that as well? Cause you, you do have, you know, a family and you, and you are studying uh, separately from them, right? You know, you're away from them when you're at Michener. Yeah. So I, I would add to that, that I think that separation is really important uh, depending on your family situation and depending on your monetary situation. I'm very aware that the MFA that well, really any graduate school, any higher education, but especially the MFA, it's a privileged space. And so you have to kind of think about that. With the low residency, I think the advantage there is for people who maybe have some uh, professional and um, familial obligations where they maybe feel more secure in their in their lives in that sense. And then so it offers them the flexibility. So I really did think about that a lot. And also because I come from the Asheville area. And so I had, you know, for example, one of the most a wonderful low residency MFA, the Warren Wilson program, which is in the in the area. So that was something I really seriously considered. Um, but for me, the decision was um, when you're talking about a traditional MFA and moving away, um, that is an immersive experience. If anybody has any experience with graduate school or going away to college, um, it's, you know, you're, you're fully in it. And, and it's, it's, it is a life in the arts, you know, for a couple of years. And so that was what I wanted. And um, because I was fortunate enough to be well-funded, because one of the other things you have to think about with low residency as opposed to um, full residency is the funding. Um, generally, it tends to be harder to find funding for those low residency programs. I think in part because it does attract people who maybe are a little more financially able to make it work within their current lives, and which I think makes often stronger writers because they have a stronger work that work ethic for that reason. Um, but, but the other side of it is if you're looking at full residency programs, then the question becomes, you know, what's the funding like, how much is it going to cost you versus how much funding is being offered to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and there are programs we should probably clarify, like, and, and I think, think Michener is one of these where everybody that's it's a small program it's a small cohort but then everyone is fully funded is that right yeah so um I think the majority of full residency MFA programs you have a mixture of funding because obviously most schools you know can't afford to 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 extend the same uh opportunities to every student just because let's face it a the arts are, are maybe not as well funded as they could be in this country. So, but Michener is one of the programs and, and they're not uncommon where it's a fully it's, and, and you'll see the term when you're looking at applications and this will be like in, you know, the, the um, uh, poets and writers articles and things like that. A fully funded program means everybody in the program is at least partially funded. And in Michener's case, everybody gets the same funding. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Erica, how did it work at Ohio state? At Ohio State, I believe everyone received some kind of funding. So there wasn't anyone who was coming completely out of pocket for, for their education. And that does seem to be the case with most of the programs um, around the country. I'm thinking of former students that I have who are now at uh, Michigan, Virginia Tech, uh, places like that. And I believe that those schools off, also offer 
some kind of funding for each of their admitted students. Yeah, those are both fully funded programs. Yeah, and and I think this would be a good time to to talk to you about. Um, I know this this idea will probably come up across a couple of different topics in our conversation, but um, you know, there's a great piece on LitHub that I'll link to in the show notes that from a couple years back. Um, that's MFA by the numbers, and you know, you uh, Leia mentioned Iowa, which is for sure I think the most famous program, and. Um, you know, the by the numbers article points out that in 2016, the Iowa Writers Workshop received um, between fiction and poetry over 1300 applications. And in both to both programs, they admitted 50 people. Right. So so keeping in mind, too, that like, because I think that's something that um, I think that's something that can have a, a maybe special effect on writers I know or on artists generally I know it was something that that I had to struggle with too that like it's very easy to take the application into an MFA program as like a qualitative indictment of your work and then and and you know obviously you'll you know the best students will get in um hopefully you know but but also the odds are just such that not every talented person is obviously getting in and I think that maybe that can be a harder um thing to reconcile for for folks staring down this process where it's um about work that you put yourself in you know that you throw yourself into so so fully yeah i i um statistically it's you know there's all these like comparisons that you can look up online and there's um a wonderful uh blog called affording the mfa which actually is quite comprehensive about all kinds of different aspects of applying to mfas that i would strongly recommend and they have some stats on this but the acceptance rate for the for the programs that are like really really giving money and really you know well known is in fiction i think it's often like less than 1% um, so it is not, and I know wonderful writers who had to apply two and three times to get into a program that they were happy with. I think that's, yeah, really important to say that this is not a judgment of the quality of your work. It's about making a commitment to wanting to study your craft and then, and then just kind of getting in that Sherman tank and going up that mountain really slow. Yeah, I completely agree. And I I recognize uh, and remember how daunting it was to, you know, think of these places taking, uh, you know, maybe five poets a year in each coming class and, um, you know, thinking about getting rejected and what that means about my work and what that means about whether or not I can get an MFA. And there are just so many factors that go into the decisions of admissions committees. And I always tell uh, my students to do what I did, which is, you know, old school, put your eggs in a lot of baskets, um, you know, don't necessarily apply somewhere where you wouldn't want to go, even if you got accepted, but, you know, to make sure you do the, take the time and do the research to find a number of programs. Cause there are so many out there who offer good funding and have amazing faculty. You're just not doing yourself any service if you find that, you know, Houston is your number one program and you're only going to apply to Houston. So I think that everyone should try to find, you know, a solid five to eight schools that they're interested in. You don't have to apply to 15 like I did, but um, I don't think that it's a bad idea. And just to echo uh, what Leah said, being rejected by a program 
doesn't say anything about about your work and whether or not your work and and you are are worth pursuing it's 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 not that different from getting a rejection from a magazine you get a rejection you keep writing you try again Yeah, I, I think that that's a good place to to kind of zoom out a little bit and and go back to this question of you know what if you're if you're at the stage where you're not even sure if you should apply like the kind of questions that you should be asking yourself about you know what your goals are what you want out of a program you know I I remember uh, on a previous episode talking to the writer Robin MacArthur who went to the Virginia College for Fine Arts which is a low residency program and she said specifically that you know her her social anxiety was such that she knew that a full residency program was going to do more harm than good to her. And and so I think things like that, you know, which are maybe less intuitive. And if you do kind of get, uh, you know, starry eyed about the prestige element, you can forget to consider like what's actually best for you. So if you're, if you're thinking, you know, as, as, as beginning as should I even, should I apply to an MFA program? Like, you know, what are the questions that you should ask yourself to kind of arrive to an answer? For me, the questions were, will this get me into a writing community. You know, I live in a rural area. Um, I don't come from, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Uh, I, I did not know that it was possible to make a living as an artist until I was like 28. You know, so for me, I was, I wanted writer friends and I wanted to have, uh, I'd never had a mentor, you know, so I wanted to have a really intimate relationship with other writers and be in a trusting environment. Um, so what kind of relationship do you want to have with other writers? Because as much as we like to think of this as a solo effort, writing is a collaborative act and you, you have to have other people involved in your process and you have to be willing, I think, to be involved in other people's processes. Then I think also thinking about what is practical in terms of workload. Uh, do you want to teach? Do you have an interest in teaching in the future? That may dictate the different types of programs you apply to. Um, do you, you know, what genre are you specifically interested in? Because some programs have stronger uh, faculty in one genre or another, especially if you're interested in nonfiction, that shortens the list quite a bit. Uh, a friend of mine, when he was deciding whether to go for his PhD years ago, said that he figured out he he knew he needed a PhD when he realized he knew where he wanted his head to live. He knew the things he wanted to be obsessed with for several years. And, and I think asking yourself the question of, you know, what kind of poetry do I just want to sit and read all day? And, and can I genuinely do that? Can I really immerse myself into this experience? And what level of immersion and what type of immersion do I want? Again, because of the low residency option. And that will, I mean, there's a lot of MFA programs in the country that will narrow your dis list down pretty tightly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would, I would add in there, um, the, one of the first questions I think that somebody should ask themselves is, uh, do you want to learn? Um, a lot of times people think of an MFA, and this is not quite the best uh, conception of it, as a place to write a book that then is going to automatically be published. And I know a lot of people wish that that was the case, and, and it's just not the case. An MFA is not guaranteeing you a publishing contract. So if you're there 
solely for that purpose, I'm not sure that it's the right, that it's the right space for you. But if, if you're interested in learning and interested in learning more about yourself as a writer, more about the craft of writing, learning from other writers, uh, interested in, you know, taking, um, other classes, like in Ohio State, I had certain uh, distribution requirements where I was taking history classes and literature classes and anthropology classes. What is it that you want to learn and how is it that you want to learn it, I think, are, are really important questions to ask from the beginning because the work is hard and, and the work can be tedious and you're really challenging your brain and your teachers and your mentors and classmates for me, there has to be some sort of love of learning or some sort of interest in the journey of becoming a better writer. I think it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, a, I think those are both really significant points. And, and I like that you brought up um, the interaction with the, the, the kind of pact that you're making with your mentors and with your classmates. And I think that it is easy to think about the the MFA is kind of just like this factory where you put your your okay work in on one end and it comes out you know much much better on the other end but you are sort of having to give that attention to many other people also and if you're not willing to do that that's important to be honest with yourself about yeah especially if you're uh, doing a full residency program where you're teaching because you have to give that to your peers and and occasionally to your students. So, and I want to say at this point that these are wonderful pursuits. I, you know, these are, these are difficult questions to ask ourselves and I, and so that we don't get too heavy, like this is also super fun. And I hope these things sound like awesome, deep questions to be re- wrestling with. And, and, you know, and I want this to be invitational in terms of like, yeah, I get to, ask myself this heavy stuff and go into this artistic space. So I hope I just wanted to interject that, that, you know, these are also exciting things to ask yourself. And are you excited by these questions? And if you are, then that, that tells you a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I got my MFA, you know, 13 years ago and I'm still sitting here excited about those questions. So yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I'm just like, I'm <laughs> such a nerd about it. I, I like, I just stop people on the bus and I'm like, Hey, do you want to go to graduate school? Like, you know? <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> Did you guys think a lot about when you were deciding, um, you know, about specific had you kind of picked out mentors or, you know, looked at faculty and thought, oh, I really want to work with this person. And that was part of your motivation. Uh, I, I sort of did. I think other people think about it more than I did. I, I was really interested in what the students coming out of the programs were producing and whether I was interested in what the students were doing. So I was looking at like, you know, this person graduated from this program two years ago and I really like their book, you know? Um, I think I was, Again, because I was coming from maybe not a really artistic background, um, I was really intimidated by the faculty of a lot of programs. And I was sort of afraid to talk to them my first semester. You know, I was just like, you seem smart. Just tell me everything and I'll write everything down and I won't talk to you and I'll never say boo. Um, But I think it is really important to look at faculty. um, uh, And I think that's probably a bigger factor for most people than it was for me. And Erica, it sounds like it was a huge factor for you. Yeah, it was definitely a huge factor because uh, what I was looking for was a faculty that offered a diverse group of poets. And I mean diversity in terms of aesthetic, 
Um, I didn't want to go somewhere where everyone was writing sort of a rectangular shaped narrative poem. Um, that just wasn't something that I was interested in. I wanted to be able to learn from professors who were working in totally different modes. Um, so I could be exposed to everything as I worked towards, you know, trying to figure out my own style, um, and my own aesthetic. So I was, I was pretty insistent about, looking for programs that, for example, had three totally different poets, three poets who were working um, in, in completely seemingly opposite, opposite ways, just so that I would have a chance to get, you know, a, a taste of everything, so to speak. That was, that was really important. I wasn't necessarily looking for faculty who wrote like I did at the time. I was looking for faculty who could teach me something that I didn't already know. So doing that kind of research was pretty important to me back then. And to your point, I, I know you were talking about aesthetic diversity, but I think it probably is important to, to touch briefly on, um, you know, racial diversity and just point of view diversity, because I mean, I, I, I know this is something that MFA culture has kind of gotten a bad rap for in the past, that it's sort of just like, you know, a table of, of very similar narratives kind of being shared around each other. I remember um, I know I know a lot of people have written about this, but the quote that's popping up in my head is is Juno Diaz, I think in some interview about about this question, like some kind of roundup of our authors weighing in on MFAs said, like, well, why would I have done this? Nobody looks like me. How should that factor into your your decision making, do you think? I think for me, um that came sort of after the application, once I started getting acceptances and had an opportunity to go visit the various campuses, um, at least at the point where I was applying, um, as I said, in, in 2000 and uh, I guess it would have been 2002, uh, there wasn't a lot of diversity among, uh, among faculty. Uh, most of the professors were, were white. Um, and again, that, that wasn't abnormal. It, it just wasn't super common to, to find a lot of people of color on, on the faculty list. Um, but that, you know, isn't unlike other businesses, uh, if you will. Um, so what I was really interested in was after getting those acceptances and going to visit those campuses for, for a few nights was just to sort of feel the vibe, you know, among the students, the vibe from the teachers, what it felt like to sit in on a workshop, if it was a place, if it was a learning space and a social space that I would feel comfortable in, even if I was in all likelihood going to be only one of a few people of color in the program. Um, and there were spaces where I felt uncomfortable and like it wasn't going to be a good fit for me, but I didn't think I was going to have you know, serious readers or um, people who would be, um, you know, interested in, in exploring the subject matter that I was exploring at that time in my work. But there were places, uh, and Ohio State was obviously one of them, where I felt, I felt comfortable with the particular demographics there. Even though they weren't necessarily ideal, I still felt like I could get a lot from the program and the people there and that that particular learning environment was going to be beneficial for me. Yeah, I... I I, I think that's a great answer. I wouldn't add much except to say, um, I said earlier, the MFA is a privileged space and the MFA industrial complex is pretty white and pretty rich, you know, and, um, and that's something to think about. I think that's changing. And I think there are programs that are actively seeking to change that um, in really positive ways. Um, 
And again, I think that's about campus visits, about talking to the students in the program. Do they feel represented? Do they feel safe? Um, do they feel like they can bring something that's maybe from a different, uh, you know, a different voice or or an othered voice to workshop? And and do they feel like that's going to be heard and appreciated? Um, and is that a healthy place for them? Uh, I think those are really important questions because I, I found that when I came here, I was like, I am the only person in my program who went to a community college, you know? Like, um, so it's, I think it is, it, this goes back to the idea of fit, right? Um, uh, and I hope that the curve is bending towards really seeing um, all of the arts, but especially MFAs, uh, really broadening the voices that they're attracting and the, the, the faculty and the students that they're, that they're supporting. Yeah. Um, I mean, and what you just said reminds me a lot of my experience, you know, when I first got to NYU, um, having gone to WVU and not really knowing a ton of, you know, like I, I didn't really have a strong understanding of like, I didn't really know like liberal arts colleges were a thing, you know, like I went to like this huge state school. And then like, I was like around all of these kids who had gotten their degrees at like Bard. And I was like, what the hell's Bard? You know, just like, and I I think that that is something that can be really hard to, um, it's not quite as quantifiable, you know, as, as other, as other, um, other types of diversity and other demographic kind of questions. But that idea of feeling like, you know, because I think it can go it, it can go in several bad directions, one of which is to just be dismissed and, and not have serious readers, and the other is to kind of have your point of view be sort of fetishized in this weird sort of exotic other way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's about, um, it's a, thinking about access, right? Do I feel like I have access to this space? Am I invited into this space? And am I not being, you know, without being tokenized in that space, you know? Um, yeah, I have the same thing of like, all, I, I always say like, all the writers I know, a lot of the writers I know, they all went to one word schools, they went to Bard, they went to Stanford, they went to yeah. Yale. And I'm like, all the schools I went to had directions in their names, <laughs> you know, like Southeastern, Northern, West State College. You one know. thing that I'll add to just on the, the, the low residency um, part of the conversation is that at least from my experience here at the University of Tampa, um, there seems to be more diversity among the student body than at least what I experienced at a full residency program. And I think that's for a lot of reasons. Number one, you have people coming from various stages of their life. You know, you have someone who's straight out of an undergraduate program and you have a lawyer who's retired and is now 65 and is pursuing an MFA. Um, So you had people coming from all kinds of walks of life, people of different ages, um, and it at least seems to me uh, that there are more people of color in uh, our low residency program than what I experienced um, as an MFA student at Ohio State or a PhD student at um, University of Cincinnati. Uh, so if if for some reason there's something that that feels unsafe or not quite comfortable about those full residency programs, um, and low residency is still an option for you, you might want to consider taking a visit to those campuses as well. Yeah, yeah, and that that brings me to kind of the the next step of the process, I guess, of sort of you know deciding where to apply and and these questions of I, I know this kind of all bleeding in and out anyway, but you know, kind of deciding well, does that low residency model work better for me for a bunch of the reasons that we've discussed? And um, 
And I, I want to talk a little bit more about the difference between those two programs in terms of, uh, I know, you know, when Erica and I had chatted about having this conversation, we talked a lot about looking at your learning style and what your needs are. Um, and that was a really, I think is a really fruitful area for kind of trying to make these decisions if, um, you know, if maybe some other, some other factors are close calls and are not really making it obvious for you. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about that with your experience with that, you know, in terms of, um, Erica definitely be running the low residency program, you know, the kinds of students that you see really take to that style, just in terms of their, their learning styles, you know, not necessarily because it fits their schedule or something like that. Right. I do feel as if we draw people who are very uh, independent learners, if you will. Um, It sounds like from what Leia was saying and from my own experience that I wanted that completely immersive MFA environment where, you know, I was going to go to workshop and go to class and then hang out with the people from workshop and class. And then we're going to go to the movies and talk to the movies about workshop and class. Um, I wanted that sort of um, full throttle, if you will, um, you know, 12 months out of the year experience for three years. And in a low residency program, you get that face to face 20 days out of the year. Um, that's that's the immersion part of it. And it's it's long days and it's busy days. But the reality is that it's a very short amount of time over the course of um, of a 12 month year. But for some people that works well for them to be on campus for that amount of time and then to work completely independently with the professor that they've been assigned to for that particular semester, you know, working uh, through email and through the universities, you know, sort of exchanging, uploading software, uh, phone conversations, Skype conversations. Um, you know, sometimes that, that fits in, of course, well with somebody's schedule, especially if they have a full-time job, but it also just fits in with certain people's learning styles where you, you don't need to have that teacher or that mentor sort of, you know, sitting across a seminar table from you once or twice a week, it, it feels more comfortable for you to to check in on them uh, or check in with them on a um, less frequent basis. Some people simply learn better with that kind of distance. I'm not one of those people, but I find that the vast majority of our students are people who prefer that kind of education. Yeah, I I would totally agree with that. I would add, I think, um, when you're thinking about MFAs, um, for me, it was important to separate what I wanted from what I needed. And I think often what we need in order to really develop and really commit to our work is to be pushed and to be challenged. And um, for me, the challenge was give up your life move 1200 miles away from your spouse and just immerse yourself completely in this experience. Right. But for somebody else, that may not be the thing that is really challenging them to do their best work. So I think, you know, often people come into full residency MFA programs because maybe because they don't know what else to do. And it feels like a safe place that's, you know, they're not pushing themselves too much because it's familiar. They did their undergrad at a similar type of school. So maybe those are people who might think about a low residency. What, you know, I'm going to be pushed. I got to, I got to hustle, right? I got to live a life and I got to find time for my work. Um, and so it's, it's about what you think your work needs and, and what will like, I don't want to say fear, but maybe, you know, what is it that maybe you're a little bit afraid of to test yourself, to really push, to learn and 
do and, 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 you know, stick your toe in the water. And for me, that was dropping in the pool, you know, stone cold. And that really, really has pushed me to learn. Uh, Cause I think having been a career person who found time to go to like a weekly workshop every year prior to this, I don't think I, I don't think a low residency program would have pushed me enough. Um, but you know, if I were another type of learner, maybe that would have been perfect. Cause it would have made me like really face up to, I have to make this part of my life. And, and, and like I said, find that, find that hustle and find that independent style. So it's again, difference between the things that sort of feel cozy and what you want and what you think your work needs. I love that idea. And, and it speaks to, you know, like Leia, what you had said before about how you found the faculty very intimidating, like, like, like noticing those sorts of cues in yourself and just being like, Oh, something here is, is sensitive. Like maybe that's the direction I need to be sniffing in. Yeah. I mean, I basically, part of why I've had such a wonderful experience in my MFA is because I have been living in abject terror in this like, like really positive and rewarding and wonderful. And it's that, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been jumping off cliffs and jumping off cliffs is super fun, but it's also scary, you know? And I, and that's been really good for me, but not everybody needs to jump off a cliff. You just got to figure out like, what do you have to jump off of? And that helps you kind of decide where you need to be applying and, and, and talking to people. And I think, I think another thing that might be helpful to add, and I know that we got, um, we're going to do some listener questions at the end of the show, but, but I know we did have, um, a kind of more general question about, um, ages, the, the age of, of average students. And, and I'm quoting this lit hub story again. Um, the low residency programs do tend to skew a little bit older, which might be something for folks to keep in mind. The difference actually isn't as big as I would have maybe guessed. Um, it's it says the median age for the full time MFA students is twenty seven, and for low res, it's thirty five. Yeah, that, that pretty much is exactly. I would say the average age of our program is maybe twenty nine. Um, yeah, that's probably right. Because I know that that and that was something that I wondered about when I was thinking about whether to apply. And I think that even, you know, even with those statistics aside, it's still just kind of the luck of the draw or, or you know, the randomness of the, the cohort that you end up in. But, you know, I, I liked the idea of workshopping. I didn't like necessarily the idea of sitting around a table, you know, as a, as a then, you know, 33-year-old with a bunch of 22-year-olds who had just graduated college. It's a different... Um, not because they can't be talented or can't have good things to say, but it's just a very different headspace, you know? Right, right. Yeah, that's been one thing, because I am older, and I think I'm rare in that I'm older coming into a full residency program. Um, and I have really, one of the things I've had to do is, like, really stop myself and go, okay, I might be old enough to be your mother, but you have something to say, and you're a person who would potentially buy this story in a magazine. So, and to really kind of listen and hear. Um, so it's been good for me. Like, I think it's kept me young, you know, because I, I know all the cool memes, but I'm also like, uh, it's made me kind of look at a person who's 24 and who's still figuring their life out and also recognize, yeah, but this person has a completely fresh take on a on an issue of the human condition that I think I got figured out in my forties, you know, and it's, it's really positive for me. Um, but I, but I think people do think about age a lot and it's, I, I get asked that question all the time. So it is something for people to, to consider when they're researching programs. Eric, is there anything that you want to jump in about that? 
Um, yeah, I would say uh, kind of on the flip side of what Leia is saying, uh, when I was getting my MFA, I was, you know, I was, I was, I was a wee babe uh, at the, at the age of um, 23. And uh, I I felt really fortunate that there were people uh, in my cohort who were older than me, um, just because, I mean, who doesn't want to have, you know, a diverse audience, you know, and and there are things about your writing that someone who was also 23 are going to pick up on and things that someone in their 40s or 50s are going to completely miss. And you can start to think about what needs clarifying and expansion and all of those things. And those aren't things that you would think about necessarily if everyone in your workshop was the exact same age. Um, I think that having a variety of ages is is great because it's it's just another way to get a lot of different perspectives and and people coming from um, you know different spaces in your life because when you're 23 you're one person when you're 40 you're a different person and and to have that many different voices in a workshop I think is is an amazing experience but I I can completely appreciate the anxiety that that one might feel. Um, if they were returning to school after some time, you know, thinking about all of the students who are fresh out of a bachelor's program. But, um, I mean, in, in some ways, the more ages, the merrier, I think, especially for, for our discipline. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that goes back to uh, your point from earlier, Erica, about kind of the, the joy of the journey of the learning. Like, really, like, how much can you embrace that process and, and really, um, open yourself up to it when it might not look exactly the way that you think it would, you know, expect or maybe think it should or something like that. Yeah. I just, I think it's so important to, um, to think of your, of your classmates as, as resources too. And I I don't mean that to sound sort of crass, but obviously you're there to work with the faculties and you're creating relationships with mentors who may last a lifetime, but there are also all of these other writers around you and you should be doing your best to learn from them too, not just from what they write, but you know, what they're currently reading, what their interests are. Um, there's just so much that you can learn from, from someone sitting next to you at a seminar table, you know, even just from watching them take notes, uh, that I, I think it's important again, uh, as we were saying before, to really get a feel for who those students are to, to, you know, ask to speak to current students in the program, um, because, you know, they are a huge part of the experience that you're going to have at that uh, university, whether it's a full residency program or a low residency program, the students are sometimes as important as the faculty members. Yeah, that brings up a really good point. Um, and another thing that I know we, we talked about, you know, wanting to touch on in this conversation is this idea of, you know, the MFA experience or like MFA culture, as it can sometimes be called, and like what we can say about what that is or is not, you know, and and is a program going to be super cutthroat and everybody's like, you know, out for blood and just wants to make, you know, their work the best or like it, it does it feel more like, is there more of a sense of camaraderie? There's, there's a real sense of camaraderie for me personally in my program. Um, and that's, that was the reason I chose to come here because I didn't want, I did not want a cutthroat experience. I do not do well in competitive environments. Um, and I think there, I don't think that, 
there are a lot of like really cutthroat programs anymore. I think they probably were in the 70s and 80s. Um, but I think part of what we've been talking about with diversity and variety of voices, I think that's helped to kind of alleviate some of that problem. You know, there are programs that are, uh, that really push students along. Like if, if you're a person who wants to be really nudged along and wants to, you know, go up for specific, um, uh, extra funding and things like that. There are programs that will really, you know, that bring agents in and, and really get gung ho about your work. Some people really thrive from that. But generally speaking, I think most programs try to um, encourage their students to look at each other as peers and as co-readers and as, and as long-term collaborators, even after you graduate. The people here that I've, the friends that I've made here, the readers I have here, they're going to be the people that read my books first draft, you know, 10 years from now, because I trust them. These are people I can, you know, figuratively stand naked in front of, and that's really valuable. I also agree that I don't know that there are as many cutthroat programs as there used to be. Um, you know, I know that certain schools had, were sort of, you know, notorious for that kind of thing. Ohio State most certainly was not. We were all extremely supportive um, of each other. I, I do think in a lot of ways, uh, a lot of times we don't get fi friction among the poets because, you know, when the agents come to campus, they don't want to talk to us. So there's, no, <laughs> there's no pressure. But I, uh, I, I think that if, if you don't, if there's not a sense of community there, you're just not going to be able to do your best work. Um, you know, as much as we said, you said this earlier, Leah, as much as writing is, a, you know, a solitary act. Um, the life of being a writer is not solitary. Um, I get inspiration from everything and everybody around me. And if I had been in a graduate program that didn't feel as if it had a fruitful or um, interesting or vibrant community, I wouldn't have been able to produce the work that I produced. Um, so, so finding a program that feels like it has the culture that you're looking for um, is really important. It's right there at the top of the list of the things you should be looking at. Yeah, can I add just one quick thing? Um, because I I want to say this because I think it's important for people to know if they're thinking about an MFA. I think sometimes if there are issues within a community, within a program, I think a lot of it has to do with insecurity. And um, that's maybe a separate topic. But, you know, people get imposter syndrome. People feel insecure about their work. And and that can occasionally cause strife because obviously when people are insecure, they kind of act in in ways that are not always welcoming. Um, so I think that's important to remember that it's okay to go into a program feeling insecure, and to, but also to recognize that a lot of people do that and that um, it's about how that program and how your faculty and how you yourself understand your vulnerability because vulnerability is so important to producing good work and to developing good relationships with other writers. Um, but it's also sometimes the source of difficulty for obvious reasons. So that's a question to ask yourself personally about how do I handle vulnerability? How do I handle being figuratively naked in front of other people? You know, do I, do I tend to go rigid if somebody criticizes me, things like that. Um, but then also to ask a program, to ask students, how, you know, how do you guys uh, create that sense of safety so that we can all be a little insecure about this incredibly difficult thing we're doing? Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. 
When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash W-M-F-A podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. Why don't we focus on, you know, the application process itself, which I know um, I, I'm excited. I'm doubly excited to talk about because I know that and as much as we've already talked about these uh, these questions as pertain to the application, they really can apply to when you're applying for anything, any kind of grant or funding or residency. So, so I think a lot of this will be broadly applicable. Um, and especially Erica, you know, as, as somebody, um, as a director of a department, can you talk a little bit about what the most important aspects of the application are when you're looking, when you're deciding? Absolutely. By far the most important, uh, aspects of the application are the writing sample and the personal statement or statement of purpose, whatever that school was chosen to call it. Um, by far the two most important uh, things, the the letters of recommendation are sort of a close third. Um, transcripts, you know, if you failed, uh, you know, biochemistry in the freshman year of your college experience, that's really not going to be a problem. Um, so transcripts aren't important and a lot of schools now actually don't even require the GRE. So that's kind of coming, uh, starting to become, uh, out of fashion, but you absolutely have to put your best writing forward. Um, this is not necessarily something where it's like, okay, I'm going to send this. It's not my most polished work, but it shows that I'm sort of going in this direction. No, that's not, it's not time for that. It's, um, it's really time to take something that you're, that you're proud of and something that really, um, feels sort of evocative of your, of your interests in terms of, um, subject matter, in terms of craft, um, something that is the best, brightest, shiniest example of, of, of who you are and, 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 uh, the writer that you want to become. Um, that to me is, is first and foremost. Uh, and then the personal statement is number one, a place to tell them that you're not crazy without saying it that way. Um, but also to just really make sure that you can clearly explain your goals, uh, for this education. Why do you want to attend an MFA program and not just any MFA program, but this particular program, which means that you have to write a personal statement for every single school that you're applying to. There's no such thing as a blanket personal statement. And you need to be able to tell the admissions committee, um, what you're going to bring to their community and what their community can bring to you and how all of those things will come together so that you can be the best writer that you can be. And then obviously for your letters of recommendation, you want to ask um, uh, former instructors uh, or advisors or mentors who know your work really well and who are obviously supportive and enthusiastic of, of your pursuing uh, an MFA. So definitely the writing sample, the personal statement, and the letters of rec. Uh, I would just add quickly um, something that I was 
well advised about um, was everything Erica said, you know, submit your best work. But also I think it's important to be honest in that personal statement, not to try to anticipate what you think an admissions committee wants to hear. Because if you if you aren't honest about who you are and what you're looking for, then you may get admitted to a program where you won't be comfortable. You know, so so t- taking that leap and saying, this is what I really want to do, and this is what I think I really need for my work, um, uh, helps, I think, an admissions committee to um, identify whether this is a person that fits here and is going to be comfortable here and we're excited about this person. Or for an admissions committee to say, gosh, you know, this is a great writer, but maybe they would be more comfortable someplace where we can provide the things that they need. So you, I think you're more likely to wind up where you belong if you're honest in that personal statement. Right. It's like dating. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty much. I, I 100% uh, agree with that, Leah. I think that, um, you know, admissions committees can, can tell when you've sort of created that form statement that starts with something like, I fell in love with books when I read Little Women when I was six. Um, don't, right. don't start your statement that way. Um, you know, something that feels honest and, you know, even vulnerable in spots. You know, I, I'm looking to study poetry and I really feel like I'm, you know, lacking in my understanding of, of contemporary poetry. Like I know the canon, but I really want to get more immersed in contemporary poetry. It's, it, there's no problem with saying things like that, with admitting that you have things to learn. Admissions committees are looking for people who are actively seeking an education. If you come into your personal statement all like swagger and look at me and I'm the best thing ever, is that necessarily what a committee is going to want to bring into their to their community? I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. My personal statement was pretty much, I'm a very hard worker and I'm very lonely. Will you please be my friend? <laughs> <laughs> And I wound up in a place where I made friends. So it was good. <laughs> how do you guys, uh, what, how would you advise somebody, you know, kind of maybe similar to the position that Leah was in when she was applying where, where you don't have that community. And so the, the feedback that you might want to make your work better in order to apply, you know, maybe, maybe you don't already have that. I I spent uh, the several years before I the, I kind of circled around the decision to apply for an MFA for like three or four years, and I made a point of going to like one day workshops, uh, things that were affordable, and then uh, applying for like little tiny grants to go for a scholarship to this three day retreat, just to kind of get a sense of because I mean I didn't even really understand the workshop process, like an intense workshop. So to kind of get a feel for the vibe of what it feels like to be in that community. Um, and by doing that, by try, by going to like two or three of those a year and trying to make friends who were distant, um, to maybe trade stuff with occasionally that enabled me to kind of polish the stories that I had and then get a sense of like where other people had gone to school or who they knew. I think that's really important what you what you were saying there, Leah. And I never really thought about it before because I was, you know, so young and and fresh out of an undergraduate program where I was a creative writing major and spent the majority of my time in workshops, you know, as an upper level student. 
that there are plenty of people out there who are interested in MFAs who have never sat in a creative writing workshop before. And it's a really good idea if, if someone's thinking about applying to MFA programs to take the time to do one of these one-day workshops or see if they can, you know, get some funding to do a weekend workshop just to make sure that the actual sort of learning space is something that they would want to be part of um, over a more long-term basis. I had never thought of that. That was a really a really smart move and, and definitely a way to get, you know, to get readers that you trust who could help you when you were polishing up what you were going to submit as your writing sample. Yeah. And it speaks to something that, you know, I know, uh, Erica, you and I talked about a little bit uh, in preparation for our conversation today. And and I remember n- noticing um, when the conversation I had with on the show with Carmen Maria Machado, she talked about just what a long range plan it it is and should be to be successful. Um, you know, to, she, she worked on stories with the intention of using them as her MFA application samples for, I believe over a year, maybe several. Um, and similar to that, that point of Leia's of, of kind of knowing in the back of your head, well, eventually I'm going to do this. So I need to get this stuff ready. Um, and really giving yourself the time and space to, to do that justice. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about, for me at least, making a decision to pursue an MFA was really about making the decision to live a life in the arts. And it's a life. I mean, this is a lifelong thing for me. I see I saw it as, okay, this is this is the means by which I'm gonna become a person who is thinking about my work and my craft all the time, regardless of, you know how many burgers I'm going to be flipping in two years because we all, we all got to make a living. Right. Um, but, but it was about making that commitment and, and, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's really important to think about it long-term and you may not be, or at least I wasn't ready. Once I started thinking about it, I wasn't ready for a couple of years financially, emotionally. I wasn't ready. I had to like really kind of wait until, you know, uh, i was felt like if I don't do this now, I'm going to regret not doing it. Um, and that took me a couple of years. And I think part of that was because, you know, I was a history major in undergrad and I hadn't been in school in a long time. Um, so it took me a while to kind of meet somebody who might recommend me and, and go to a week long workshop in the summer and, uh, and then go, okay, this is, this is who I am. These are my people. And I would like to join the tribe now. And do you guys have any, um, any advice for folks in terms of, I mean, honestly, this is this is kind of a selfish question because it's something that I struggle with a lot when I'm applying for things is that, you know, because I haven't been at it for terribly long, um, although this conversation is making me think that I need to just be doing more work. <laughs> so so that might very well be the answer, which is fine. Um, but I do kind of always have the struggle with, well, my current project is both the most polished and not finished, you know? Um, and, and then it, it's also novel length one. And I so I kind of have two questions there. I wonder if 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 you do have shorter fiction, um, does that serve you better in an application process? Is it easier than taking a longer work out of context? And then, you know is it okay if, if the stuff is, is unpublished, is not, is not, um, you know, is maybe polished, but is still in progress? I, I, I mean, I definitely think, uh, well, I'm someone who doesn't believe that anything is ever finished. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking of something as like moderately satisfying. Um, 
but, uh, you know, so, so putting the pressure on yourself and thinking, well, is this, is, is this done? Is this as done as it can be is, is just going to lead you into a rabbit hole of, of anxieties and, um, then procrastination because of that anxiety. I mean, you're looking for something that's your strongest work, something that's like the most polished that you can get it to be right now. It doesn't mean that it won't, you know, that you won't come back to it later, but it's, it's the best representation of, of your work at that time. Um, and, and as someone who reviews applications, um, you know, in some ways it's easier to look at a self-contained piece of short fiction, um, but there's no reason that, that it needs to be that convenient. We get plenty of people who submit excerpts from novels. And if you include like a two sentence note at the top of that excerpt, just giving the bare bones of what we need to know to sort of understand what's about to happen, um, that can be perfectly sufficient. The committee is going to understand that, you know, that it's just a section of something. You don't need to provide a note at the end of what's going to happen next. But if you can work to make it sort of as self-contained as possible, whether it's a chapter or a piece of the chapter, um, that helps people who are who are submitting um, part of a longer work. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely I agree with all that. I, you absolutely don't have to have published um, in order to apply. Absolutely not. I mean, there are people uh, who get into the best programs in the world who've never published a word of their work. Um, it, having said that, if there's something that you know is a good piece where you've managed to place it in a good journal and uh, an editor has told you this is a really strong piece, then submit your best work you know, to that program. Or maybe it's just something that you have had, that your friends have responded to really strongly and said, this really feels like you're writing. Um, as far as novel excerpts versus short fiction, I'm in, uh, you know, fiction is my concentration and I, I've kind of snooped on this debate <laughs> from faculty at a couple of programs. I don't think there's a huge difference. I think occasionally there are, um, faculty who in fiction who, um, slight, like, I mean, like 51%, 49%, like slightly prefer a short story just because they want to see a whole story arc. Um, uh, so if you're a short fiction, if you're a short story writer, then certainly you should submit a short story. But I, I, yeah, there's plenty of people that get in with, with novel excerpts and, and it's really just about, you know, them being excited about what you're submitting and, and you being excited to submit it to them. And again, I think it just comes back to fit and comes back to go in where the love is, you know, who wants me? This is what I got. For sure. Are there any other kind of do's and don'ts for the samples that, that come to mind to you guys? I, um, at least the, you know, the times I've read applications or, you know, applications for grants or conferences or, or things of that nature. Um, sometimes things that are super expository aren't your best friend. Um, it's, it's, it's a pretty good idea for something to happen over the course of your, of your, uh, writing <laughs> sample. And some people just never think about that. Um, but it just, you know, for instance, if you're, if you're submitting, um, a group of poems, you know, if the first poem is just sort of a meditation, you know, on a tree that can be a perfectly lovely, engaging poem, but you might want to do something that's a little more active, at least in that first poem in the packet, because, you know, it's not unlike uh, an editor or a reader at a journal, you have to get them from minute one. Um, 
and and hold their attention. So things that start off, you know, with with weak verbs and um, sort of more expository language just aren't as eye-catching necessarily. And, you know, I wouldn't spend too much time sort of analyzing the language uh, on that level of your piece. But um, again, it just goes back to thinking about what your best work is. And your best work is the work that you're excited about. And that means that there's something exciting in there and the committee will pick up on that. I would just add really quickly that like every program has a different set of instructions for what they want you to submit. They mean it. If they say submit 15 to 17 pages, submit 15 to 17 pages. Don't be like, here's 22 pages. I really want to do it. Just do what they ask um, because there's usually a really good reason for that. Yeah, I will. Um, I'll add and you know, I'm I'm a big time nerd and I like to stay organized, but um, I found it really helpful to make a spreadsheet when I was applying to programs just so I made certain that I knew what everybody wanted because it can be a lot of information to keep in your head. So if you can keep a list of, you know, uh, Michigan wants this and Utah wants this, then you won't run into situations where, you know, oh, Utah wanted a personal statement that was 500 words. I wrote 1,500. Now I have to cut it down. So it's it's good to be organized about um, the actual application requirements and the ways in which the university wants you to send them to them. Some things need to be uploaded. Some things might need to be emailed. So it's, it's really important to follow the procedures because uh, people will be annoyed with you if you break their rules. Right. Yeah. And I will add that on Facebook, uh, especially, but also on Grad Cafe, there are groups of people who have, who have like already done this legwork for you, who are happy to share their life hacks. And if you're nice to people who are veterans of the application process, they're happy to share that information. Okay. So, so jumping into then that final sort of question of, you know, pulling the trigger. I liked how to, to Erica's point earlier, you know, getting a feel for the campus life and the and the student body and does this feel like a good place to me? And and I think that that speaks to a really important point about how much of it is kind of about intuition and feel and like, you know, you've done all this research and you've written all of the essays and you've, you know, you've selected these places for a reason. And, and so now you kind of just have to trust the work that you've already done and see what your gut's telling you. Do you you guys feel like that's accurate? Yeah, I believe in, I believe in my gut and I kind of believe in magic. So, um, I think do the research and then be ready for the moment where you have to trust your gut and you have to trust the magic carpet that's going to, you know, fly you to wherever you're supposed to go. Yeah. 100%. I mean, you just, you have to go with what feels right. And, you know, like we were saying earlier, you know, it might not be the top tier, most prestigious programs. It, it might not be somewhere where you ever thought you would end up, but if it feels right, follow that instinct. Absolutely. And that, you know, with, with my MA, um, I definitely had that where um, I had wanted, you know, since forever, I had wanted to go to Columbia. Um, and I and I don't know where I got that idea in my head, but I was very smitten with it from like a very early age. And and I and I got accepted and I went to this open house and I was just like, oh, this is not the place for me. And that was really hard to admit. Um, but I do think that I, you know, that I ended up making the right choice and NYU just felt more like me and it, but it was very disappointing to me to realize that Columbia didn't feel like me, um, for, for a variety of reasons. So, so I think, 
you know, definitely from personal experience, I can say that like, that's also kind of like dating, you know, maybe somebody might be great and still not be the right person for you. And you have to be honest about that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think on the flip side of that, my own experience was, I, I just want to say, I hate hot weather, hate it. Um, <laughs> I'm from the mountains and I'm in flat Texas and it's 106 degrees outside, you know, but I, because I do kind of believe in magic, um, this is a little bit embarrassing, but I, before I started the MFA application process the fall before, um, or I guess a couple of months before, I saw a movie that had this beautiful, like, uh, crane shot of the city of Austin. And I was sitting in the movie theater and I started crying and I was like, I think I should apply to programs in Texas. And if you, if you had told me, if you had told me five years ago that me, like the person who complains when it gets above 65 degrees and, you know, who's never worn a pair of cowboy boots in her life. If you told me that I was going to wind up in Austin, Texas, like two-stepping and writing poetry on, in my free time, I would not have believed you. But there was, I just had this little something that said, research some programs there, you know? So I think you got to follow that stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll add my little magic story to that too. Oh, good. This is fun. <laughs> Nobody could have told me that I was going to live in the state of Ohio. Like, that was just not ever going to be an option. It's cold. It's Ohio. It's just no. Um, and and also, you know, while I'm a gigantic sports fan, the idea of living in a college town was a little scary, you know, where, where football really just takes over the entire city. I was... I was sort of nervous about that, but I was like, no, let me go ahead and apply. I'm so interested in the faculty and the funding's really great. And I went up there and I just fell in love. It was just like the cutest, sweetest little place. And I didn't care that football fans, you know, were going to run around all Saturday and I wasn't going to be able to get in the car because of traffic. It just felt right, even though it's somewhere where I never expected to live ever. Yeah. I mean, I like Matthew McConaughey movies now. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Because he's like his voice come his voice is the on the PA system and all the buses in Austin and I'm like what's up Matthew Oh my God Never never thought that would have happened I <laughs> hope it's going to be coming out of your mouth I hope that I know, that's right? in some of your fiction <laughs> Yeah he's going to work his way in at some point <laughs> And you know I think a big question that people wonder about and and obviously folks we are not financial advisors and we're not giving you financial advice but you know if if you are in a situation where you are if, if we're getting an MFA means spending some money out of pocket you know when when is that you know as someone in student loan debt currently from my MA I'm kind of inclined to be like don't do it but I you know that's just a little bit of of my experience and and I certainly don't regret my time and my in my MA I'm just kind of like oh I didn't quite realize this was going to be you know I was like 21 and wasn't really thinking that through um so so what do you guys think about kind of it as an expense don't go into debt to get an MFA I just I just certainly not a full residency one if you're a person who has like predictable income or you have a full-time job and you can afford to do the low residency I think that's a different conversation and I'll let Erica speak to that but in terms of like the experience of a full residency immersive MFA I strongly advise people not to pay for it unless they essentially unless they are independently wealthy um, 
I think you got to, it's, there are enough programs with good funding that rather than um, going into debt, just maybe give it another year, try again next year, try to get that spot where you feel welcomed, where you feel supported financially and artistically. That has been hugely important for me um, to feel that I didn't have to worry about the money. Yeah, I'm I'm going to completely agree with Leah um in terms of the full residency program. I do not think it's a good idea to go into debt for a full residency MFA. For me personally, I um came out of my undergraduate program with significant amounts of money that I needed to pay the federal government sooner or later and was already aware of the fact that I wanted to be a teacher realizing that I was only going to make a certain amount of money which was going to make it harder to pay off the student loans. So um, incurring loans for my master's degree just simply was not an option. It was something that was just not financially viable for me. I tell my students who are interested in those kinds of programs that there's just really no reason to go into debt unless you do have that money. Uh, And you have to think very clearly and thoughtfully about whether that's something that you want to do and something that you can financially handle in terms of yourself, your family, if you have a family. It's a a difficult question, Um, but I think that the benefits of it can be absolutely transformative that it's if it's something that's feasible for you to consider then then you should consider it absolutely great okay well let's take some listener questions um and i think that actually erica what you were just saying segues really nicely into one that we got um what career paths are possible with an mfa other than teaching uh the writer says i'm pursuing an mfa to become a better writer not in order to gain entry into a certain field but it would be nice to know what options are available absolutely um a lot of our low res students are not interested in becoming teachers some definitely are and those have a tendency to be the younger students, but uh, some of the older students just, you know, want to work on this passion project and want to be better writers and then are interested, you know, in the options of, of, of other kinds of fields. We have graduates who work in public relations, graduates who are media writers for uh, nonprofit organizations. Um, we have a graduate who then decided to go to law school um, at the age of 50-something, which I think is so awesome. Um, there are there are all kinds of things that you can do with a degree uh, in writing. And obviously, the MFA is a creative writing idea. But just think about all of the nuts and bolts of writing that it's teaching you. And not just the nuts and bolts of writing, but the nuts and bolts of creating an argument and persuasion. Uh, That's a lot of what we're doing uh, when we're writing poems and stories and essays and such. And and those kinds of skills are are really transferable to to any kind of job that involves uh, critical thinking and and writing on on any level. And also uh, having employers see that you took the time and you're dedicated to education to attend a master's program will, you know, will take you far in, in many different arenas. So it's, I, I don't like the idea that an MFA is a teaching degree. It, it's just not. Um, it is true that a lot of writers become tr- teachers and some people do that to pay the bills and others uh, like me do it because they actually enjoy teaching as much as they enjoy writing. But it is by far not the only avenue 
that you can pursue. There's so many other things out there that that can you know make you a decent living and sort of fill that that writerly need that you have. And you know the job ends at five o'clock and you can come home and work on your poems. So it's sort of the right. best of both worlds. For sure. Yeah, I would add a couple things to that. I think that's a great answer. Um, but also, there are a lot of jobs in publishing. I think people think of publishing as being this dying industry, but it's. I see more jobs advertised for editorial assistants at magazines, at um, you know, especially if you're living in maybe a, a more um, uh, urban area. Um, there are all kinds of jobs at um, uh, publishing houses at uh, smaller presses, um, in marketing, in acquisitions and in editing. And then there's, of course, going the, the route of becoming a literary agent yourself. Um, so there's a lot of options in the publishing industry, which is one reason maybe to look at, if that's something that interests you to look at finding an MFA program that puts out its own literary magazine, because that's a really great opportunity to learn that process. And, and that's just incredible for a lot of students. And then the second thing that I, I would add, and this is probably just because I'm, I'm in Austin, Texas, so I see this a lot here. I think a lot of tech companies are interested in creative writers because they do um, tech writing, uh, which is a job I used to do years ago. That requires a really creative brain. And if you have the discipline of an MFA, you can actually, in the same way that somebody who graduates from an MFA in art can maybe get like a graphic design job. I think a lot of people who pursue creative writing can often find work in, in tech and technical industry because you have to be able to think concretely, but also abstractly at the same time. So I know of at least two big companies in the Austin area that actively recruit people who have, um, uh, creative degrees. And um, this is another question that I love that we did end up talking some about um, the the writers asking about being enrolled in a full residency program, but having adult responsibilities like a spouse or a mortgage. Um, and so uh, I think, Leah, this is all you. So it's up to you if you want to answer this or not. But um, <laughs> the uh, the question that she follows up with that we haven't quite touched on is what do you wish you'd done differently? Um, I think I wish, oh gosh. So my situation is, you know, I'm living apart from my spouse. Um, and, and I'm, uh, oh gosh, what do I wish I'd done differently? I wish that I had here. Okay. Here's one. First of all, I would say the thing that people forget is that it's cool to love a writer. And um, and I don't say that like as, to, as, a, as a joke. I, what I mean by that is I think that I underestimated how willing my significant other was to share in this process and to be proud of me in this process and how important that is. And, and you know, because I spent a lot of time feeling guilty about am I you know, do I call my mother enough? Have I done my homework? And kind of bouncing back and forth. And I think checking to make sure that you're, if, if you are a person who has a family or has children, checking to make sure that your family's really on board and really supports you, that will tell you a lot. And, and if they do, and if they are supportive, um, to really count on that support and to really believe them when they say that they believe in you. Um, uh, and if you don't have uh, support from your family or your spouse, then that's that's a different conversation because this is who you are. If you if you're a person who wants to write and wants to or wants to make any kind of art, that's a fundamental part of who you are. So I'm not going to get into you know marriage counseling well, or anything should, like yeah. that. But yeah, <laughs> right. um, but I but it's an important question to ask. And 
you know, don't, don't not do it because somebody else in your life thinks you shouldn't. And if you do decide to do it, and if you have the support of people who care about you, believe and trust in that support. Um, I think sometimes I have not leaned on people who love me as much as I could have. Mm. Uh, and I forget that, you know, when I'm going crazy and when I'm working on something and, you know, my hair's a mess and I'm wearing a three day old shirt that I haven't washed, like, that's fine. Like the people who love me in my house, they think that's hilarious and awesome. And they just bring me a cup of coffee and leave me alone. I don't have to feel guilty about going into that place sometimes, you know? So just in- embrace the fact that it is something that they get to enjoy and be part of too. Okay. So I've got just two more here. Um, one is just a quick question. And then uh, there's a wonderful letter that I want to share with folks. I think it touches on, I think it's a good way to wrap up everything we've been talking about. Um, but first, uh, just a quickie, how important do you think an MFA is just for networking? For me, it's been super important. Because like I said, I live in the middle of nowhere. And I don't know, I didn't know anybody when I came here. I already knew a few people, but not a lot. Uh, I think it depends on the program. Um, but I think if you if if you really want to make connections, it's it's a it's a it's a formal means by which to gain access to all that stuff. Um, I don't think you have to have it, and certainly you can query agents and sell a book without ever going near an MFA program. Um, but for me, it was it's been really important, and it's been one of the most valuable things that I've gotten out of my MFA. Yeah, I definitely uh, totally agree with that. It's a it's a sort of convenient formalized way to meet people you know people who are your classmates and and uh professors and you know people who are coming to campus to visit uh, if you're not in an MFA program you have to seek those things out a little bit more uh if you live in an extremely urban area that has a reading series every single night then you know it might not be that difficult but if you live in you know, a place that's a little more suburban or, or even remote, that kind of community just isn't going to be out there for you. Um, and it was important, though I came from an urban area, it was important for me to to be in a place that was that was full of writers where I would just be exposed to that, you know, all the time, as we said, and this really sort of um, immersion uh of, of that kind of culture and community. And I wanted it to sort of come to me rather than me going to it. Right. Um, and that was indicative of my personality at the time. But, um, you know, I, I think, I think when you're thinking about, um, MFA programs, you have to think about, you know, how much establishing those sorts of relationships are, are important to you and, and how do you want to go about, establishing those relationships and and being in an MFA program is just in a crazy great way to meet people who are interested in the same things that you're interested in and are interested in other things that they can introduce you to so um it's not necessary sort of for networking um but then again networking is one of those words that we poets don't necessarily use <laughs> communing how about that maybe not networking but communing <laughs> I want I want to close by reading a bit of this really lovely letter uh, that we received, and it's the writer is a stay at home dad in charge of two small boys. Um, he kind of keeps tossing around the idea of doing an MFA, looks at programs, but then sorts of sort of decides that you know the concerns about money and parenting responsibilities and uprooting his family are too much. But but then you know the the yen kind of never really goes away, and so he's asking. 
you know, if this is, if this is the right thing for him. And, um, and the way that he phrases this, it really hits home for me because he, he's questioning his motives, uh, which is a big part of why I decided not to pursue an MFA when I, when I didn't. And I mean, you know, never say never, but, but I did feel like this really strong need. I realized that what I felt most strongly was a need for external validation. And that what I would, I was kind of hoping for this sort of hollow thing of just like the stamp that's like, okay, you're, you're, you're legit, you know? And, right. and I think that it's really hard to be honest with yourself about that, which is, you know, being honest with yourself about what you need and what you want seems to be the theme that we keep coming back to. Um, but he puts it so beautifully. So he says, what do I expect? What delusions do I hold about MFA programs? When I ask others if I should attend an MFA program, I wonder if what I'm really asking is, Am I good enough? Can you rescue me from first career failure? Will you ease all my insecurities related to claiming that I'm a writer? Will you fill the void inside me? None of these seem to be reasonable expectations of an MFA program. If anything, the past five years of regular writing has taught me that if I'm not willing to put my butt in the chair and write, then none of this speculation and wondering really matters. So I'm wondering now, what are reasonable expectations of an MFA program? Forgive me for raising more than a simple question and possibly rambling, but this is what is stirring inside me. Sincerely, a sleep-deprived stay-at-home dad. And I think that question of what are your reasonable expectations, I mean, I, I love that because it kind of goes beyond, you know, goals are one thing, but but measuring them up against reality is also a very important part of this process. So so kind of what do, what do you guys think of when you hear that? First of all, I just want to hug this person. <laughs> I know. I know. We are virtually hugging you. Yeah, we I totally hear these questions and these are questions I wrestle with and still wrestle with. I think all writers always no matter how successful they get, I think they struggle with this feeling of am I legit? You know, can you fill this void inside me? I mean, I don't think I'd be writing if I didn't have those questions always. Um, but in terms of like just practical answer to what hit, what this person's asking, I would say, I think it is a reasonable expectation to ask that an MFA program help you feel supported, help you feel safe, help you feel challenged, um, help you feel uh, invited to do your best work. Um, and that it also empowers you to answer a lot of these questions for yourself and to be the person who talks yourself up. I can answer the question now. When I came into my MFA program, I was insecure about calling myself a writer. And now when somebody asks me what I do for a living, I say I'm a writer. And I say it because partly because of the support and because of the invitation of the program that I've been in and the friends that I've made here, but also because I feel like I've had been very fortunate to have the experience of being empowered to answer that question for myself and to just sit quietly with myself and go, no, this is what I do. And I'm proud of myself. So uh, I think it's a reasonable expectation to um, say that an MFA program will put you in a place where you will feel that safety and you will feel that support so that you can be there so you can answer these questions to yourself and for yourself and believe the answers. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. And I think, you know, that you can reasonably expect if, you know, if you're holding up your end of the bargain and doing the work that, that you will grow as a writer um, and you will grow as a reader and not just a reader of others' work, but a reader of your own work. And then you become a better editor and reviser as a result of that. And, and for me, at least personally, that's where I started to find confidence in myself as a writer, confidence in calling myself a writer. It didn't necessarily come from, 
you know, my classmates in workshops saying, oh yeah, Erica, that was a really great poem. I mean, I would just go back to my apartment and be like, oh, Erica, that really sucks. <laughs> like that didn't change. <laughs> what they said never changed my mind. Yeah. I still felt that insecurity. <laughs> But, you know, after a while, I could really I could really start to see the way so that I had grown as a writer and and as an individual. And and I was in a supportive place where I felt as if I could take pride in in that and what I had learned and, and, you know, what what I had become as a writer. And I'm not talking about, you know, a published author with multiple books. I was still just a kid, you know, but but I had a sense of 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 self-security and, and self-satisfaction that I did not have when I started the program. Um, and I think that's a reasonable expectation for an MFA program. Is it ever going to alleviate your need uh, for someone to legitimize you or make you feel like you're good enough? It's, it's, those are so, those, those questions are so deeply rooted inside oneself that, uh, the answers can't come from from anyone else, but being in an MFA program, I think, as Leah said, can can get you closer to to asking yourself those questions and being able to answer them. Yeah, I love that, and and I love the idea of like, you know, these questions of these questions that are really just about ourselves, and and you know, I think as we're talking. Um, can you can draw a straight line to the reasons that we we all write in the first place and so so that having a community around you that is exploring those same questions is very valuable whether that community needs to be in an MFA program is a very personal decision but the idea of having that community um is kind of independently valuable all right, ladies, thank you so, 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 so much for all of your time. I think this is going to be really valuable for people, and I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. Erica, it was so nice to talk to you. It was so nice to talk to you, too. <laughs> I hope I get to meet you someday. I know. Maybe Likewise. <laughs> Today's conversation was edited by Jenny Casas and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.